Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's episode, we continue to go back and fill in some of the the more rare, the rarer lectionary weekends. This would be the readings for the eighth Sunday after the Epiphany in year A. And that is a rare one indeed. So let's see, we've got the season of Epiphany can have Epiphany. You'll always get the second, third, and fourth Sundays. But depending on when Easter falls, you might also also have Epiphany the fifth, the sixth Sunday, seventh Sunday, eighth Sunday. So eighth is last, which would thus require the latest possible date for Easter. That you would be able to get the full force of the Epiphany text. In which case, your Pentecost season will be shortened, and so you won't get as many of the propers. For this reason, two of the three readings for Epiphany 8 are the same as Proper 3. In Proper 3, which requires a very early Easter, you would have Isaiah 49, verses 8 to 16a, which is also our Old Testament reading for the eighth Sunday of Epiphany. And you would have the gospel text of Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 to 34, which we have for this episode as well. The difference, the only difference, comes in the epistle readings between these two Sundays. Proper 3 in year A will have Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, whereas the 8th Sunday of Epiphany, after Epiphany, is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Now, I did just recently record the proper three of year A episode, so I will be pulling those clips forward for the old and gospel readings. But we'll have a new text here to study from 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 13, as this is the only time that text appears in our three-year lectionary. So we'll start with the Old Testament from Isaiah 49, verses 8 through 16a. And I'm going to go ahead and jump backwards. We won't unpack verses 1 through 6 or even 1 through 7, but they're necessary context here. The prophet Isaiah, writing, I guess technically that would be what, late 7th century? No, late 8th century. I always confuse my B.C. centuries. I apologize. The, The picture here is that he gives us four servant songs. That is, very specific prophecies about the Savior, the suffering servant, that God would send to save us, to redeem his people. Those songs can be found in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 49, our chapter here, verses 1 through 6. And then chapter 50, verses 4 to 11, and then chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 12. So let me read the servant song from verses 1 through 6, and I'll add on verse 7 as well, because, again, we're looking for our context here. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. 
And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with Yahweh, and my recompense with my God. Turn my page there. Now Yahweh says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That is where verse 6 ends and where most people would argue the song ends. And I, it doesn't get any clearer that we're talking about Jesus than verse 6. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Already a prophecy that salvation would be also for the Gentiles. Thanks be to God. I'm a Gentile. I appreciate this gift very much. Now, verse 7 as well. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. One deeply despised, Jesus, crucified by the Romans, hung upon a cross for all the world to see his nakedness and despair to mock him as though they had won but in reality they had not they had lost and so Philippians 2 at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord kings will see it and arise princes will prostrate themselves on the last day they will recognize their king thankfully some of them will recognize their king before the last day Repenting of their sin, trusting in the Lord, there have been Christian kings in the history of the world. I don't know if there are any right now. And any government ruler is a king, I, the way I phrase it. I don't know enough about them. I don't pay enough attention to them to know such a thing. I pray that we have brothers in such positions uh, because I would love to see them in paradise someday. But I don't, I don't personally know. So the Lord has given them their authority. May they use it well. Anyway, that brings us to our text. And it's all one paragraph. So here, let me go ahead and read the rest of Isaiah 49, verses 8 through 16. And I, I included the first part because we're still talking about that servant. That servant who is going to be despised, but to whom kings will bow down. That servant is going to be crushed, and yet God is going to use that to save the nations, to bring his salvation to the whole earth. Here we go, verse 8. Thus says Yahweh, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. 
and I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for Yahweh has comforted his people, and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, Yahweh has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Fantastic last sentence, but we'll get to that. And it's why we probably end at 16a instead of including the full verse of 16. I mean, that's a punch right there at the end, a very gospel-filled statement. Not that 16b is not. I mean, what's 16b say? But your walls are continually before me. Uh, The picture of God's protection. It's not wrong. It's not bad at all. But to end on such a clear gospel connection is is probably what the, the lectionary committee was thinking with that text. In a time of favor, I have answered you. We think of the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus calls out to his Father. We think of the cross, where he calls out to his Father. A time of favor, a favorable time. It is the time. It is the moment that God had planned from before he had even formed the foundation of this world. The Lord already knew what he would have to do to save us. He already knew the cost it would bring. It was his timing. It was his day of salvation, and so he helped his servant, capital S, Jesus. He raised him up. Jesus was not left for his soul to go down to Sheol and see corruption. He was raised up, and he lives. The Father helped the Son in that time of trouble. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. The ESV footnote will simply point you forward to the new covenant language of Matthew chapter 26, as Jesus celebrates the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And in doing so, he takes that cup and he tells them to drink of it, all of you, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for many. The new covenant. God the Father would preserve Jesus through all of that suffering, the suffering servant, through all the trials he would endure. The Lord would preserve his son. He would raise him up, and he would make him as an everlasting covenant to us. And so he is. And it's not a covenant where you and I do. It's not a covenant that we can really break. Okay, we can But it's not like the old covenant, the old covenant where you do this thing and God will bless you. You do, you keep his commandments and you will live long in the land, that kind of language. This isn't that. This is simply take, eat, drink of it, all of you. That's the command. That's what we're called to do in the new covenant Christ makes with his disciples on that day, Maundy Thursday, right before his betrayal. So can we break it? Yeah, we we walk away. We don't 
take Christ's body and blood. That's how you break the new covenant. In which case, the forgiveness that was there for you is not there for you. You've, you've walked away from it. You've rejected it. But it's not, it's not something as Christians we would really describe as something we do. We would describe it as something we receive. He just he gives himself to us, and, and we thank him for it. We receive it by faith, which is a conversation coming up in the epistle text from Romans chapter 1. So God has given Jesus as a covenant to his people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. Restoration. God is going to build a new land for us. The desolate heritage idea would even make us say, restore a new land for us. Thinking of the promised land of old as a foreshadowing of the paradise that is to come, thinking of this broken creation that we live on now, which will be somehow passed away so that we have a new heaven and a new earth. That could happen in several different ways. I don't know. Will it be like terraforming that the Lord cleanses the surface of this world and then makes it new again? Will he scrap this one and build a brand new one? Uh, Will he somehow speak and it's simply done? I don't have answers to that because the scripture doesn't speak to that. It simply tells us what will be and that we will be there with Christ forever. So Jesus is the one to establish the land, the promised land. And in John 14, he says that as he goes there to prepare that place for us, he will also then come back to us in order that he will take us to be with him where he is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And so Jesus declares to the prisoners, come out. He calls us out of darkness into his most marvelous light from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He has rescued us from our slavery to sin and death. That's language you'll see in Romans, but you'll see elsewhere in the New Testament as well. He's delivered us. Just as he brought his people of old out of Egypt, out of their slavery, he has brought us out as well. You get the picture here of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead where he simply calls out to Lazarus in the tomb and tells him to come out. And again, so it is that he does for us. He calls us out of the graves of death that we, if he doesn't first return, that we will someday be banished to. Our bodies falling apart but not permanently. They shall feed along the way on all the bare heights. Bare heights, right? A bare height is a, like a mountaintop that has nothing to offer. And yet here God says it will. On the bare height will be their pasture. God provides. God will provide for his people, and ultimately this is, again, paradise. Verse 10, they shall not hunger nor thirst is a promise of paradise. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. That is a reversing of the curse in Genesis chapter 3, that man's labor would be difficult, filled with thorns and thistles, but also by the sweat of his brow, caused by that scorching heat. He who has pity on them will lead them. This is the Lord, our good shepherd, John 10. By springs of water he will guide them. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Also, Revelation chapter 22, the promise of a river that that gives life. 
the Lord provides, there will be no hunger nor thirst. I will make all my mountains a road, my highways raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. I think this is a picture back to John the Baptist from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, that he would be the one who calls out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord to make paths straight for Jesus when he comes. John's job was to call people to repent, that their sins and their their brokenness would not cause them to not be able to see the Messiah when he came. Turn away from your sin. Be ready. The Messiah is coming. This is good news. And so for us, as we think about this as well, for those of us who have seen Christ, well, maybe not face-to-face as we would like, right? That would be a joy to see our Savior, but for those of us who have not seen and yet believed, John chapter 20, the Lord is making a brand new creation. The mountains are a road, highways raised up. I mean, everything is is a path that can be traversed by, by those who have faith. I don't know what the new creation is going to look like. But it will be glorious because Christ will be there. So these will come from afar, from the north, from the west, from the land of Syene. Syene is down in the opposite direction, to the south. It is on the eastern side of the Nile, uh, near Ethiopia. So it's quite a ways away. People will come from afar. Jesus, again, from verse 6, It's too light a thing you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is our Lord. This is what he does. People all over the world will believe. Every nation under heaven. People will believe from every tongue, tribe, nation, people. Those are some of the words you'll see scattered throughout the book of Revelation so frequently. Those lists are pretty common there. Sing for joy. Break forth into singing. Creation, right? Even creation would exalt. And Paul uses this kind of language in Romans, I believe it was chapter 8, where he talks about creation groaning as it longs for the restoration of its caretaker, man. Yahweh has comforted his people, will have compassion on his afflicted. Here's that salvation of this servant from verse 6. He has come, he has rescued, he has given us comfort. It's one of many words we could use to describe what Christ has done for us. The forgiveness of sins that he has won for us as his people. But Zion said, Yahweh has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. Even as Christians we doubt. We wonder if the Lord is really still beside us. Or if he's left us alone. Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? Why am I suffering? The Lord is with us. Christ has promised, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. From Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. So the Lord here says, can a woman forget her nursing child? It's not likely. But, in case she does, there's the next part of the verse. Even these may forget 
That would be quite a thing. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, we could go to John chapter 10 on that one. Hear from Jesus speaking in verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That text we don't normally talk about in regards to the crucifixion, and as clear a vivid image as this is here in verse 16 of Isaiah. But maybe we should from time to time. Maybe it should give us some pause to think of it even more powerfully. The way that I normally envision that John 10 text is to think of the Father, because he is God the Father, having uh, a hand that is significantly large enough to hold me within it, and I'm his, and he holds me, and he cares for me, and no enemy can breach that, that wall, that barrier that is his hand. No one can get past his defense to harm me. It's not a closed fist. He's not crushing me, squeezing me to death. His hand is open and caring and gentle in that way, which also means that I would be free to leave, just as Adam and Eve in the garden were free to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could walk away. There was nothing to choose. They didn't have to choose to believe in God. They already did. It was a gift. They were created in that beautiful relationship with the Lord. But they gave it up. In your baptism, or in the proclamation of the gospel that you heard at some point, you have been placed into the palm of the Father's hand. No enemy can take you from it. It's a gift. Um, it's a gift we can sadly reject. May the Lord keep us in his hand forever. May he not let me wander astray. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done for me in that. That then gets us back to verse 16. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's a phrase that I think works tremendously for us in English, especially the way we picture the crucifixion. The way that most people visualize the crucifixion and the nails of Jesus is that they went through the palms of his hand. Now, I mean, most likely, they probably went through right below the wrist. The ancient world considered everything from your elbow to your fingertips to be your hand. Uh, so it's not like I'm saying he wasn't pierced in the hand. Uh, they just probably did right below the wrist because then you have the whole bone structure to support the weight, whereas you don't have the bone structure um, if that nail drives in between two fingers, as you think about and feel those bones running through your hand. But that said... The, even the Hebrew word here for a palm could also be rightly translated as the hand. It can even be the sole of a foot, for example. It's, it, Hebrew language has a little flexibility in that way. So it, it is the picture of the crucifixion. Whatever language you, you like to use, however you want to visualize this, we've been engraved on his hands. That nail mark, that's me. That's you. It is a reminder to Jesus daily, constantly, of what he did to redeem us. And it is why, it seems, it seems like a, a fair educated guess, it is why after the resurrection Jesus still has his scars. His glorified body still bears 
the nail marks because it is a reminder not only to him in that way, but also to us of what he has done for us, of how he has saved us. He has engraved us into the palms of his hands. We are his. He will never forget. Thanks be to God. So the one text that we have to distinguish us from proper three of year A is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, from Paul's letter to the very divided church in the city of Corinth. We'll do this in three paragraphs, so first verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is how one should regard us, is how he starts this chapter, and this is because in the end of the previous chapter he has just mentioned Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, who back in chapter 1 the people were fighting over who they should follow. It's one of their divisions. But as leaders of the church, Paul here speaking, says they are but servants. This is not unfamiliar to the ministry of Jesus as he was teaching his disciples, including Cephas, which is another name for Peter, that whoever wants to be first among them must be last, whoever wants to be greatest among them must be slave of all. We are servants of Christ, each and every one of us, and leadership is done by serving. Jesus, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Paul says that they are stewards of the mysteries of God. I don't know Latin very well, but this mystery word is a fascinating one. And if somebody here knows Latin, particularly the, the history of the the Latin Vulgate translation of Scripture. I'd be fascinated uh, to learn more about this particular phrase. This, I believe, is where we end up taking our word sacrament from. The Latin word sacramentum, which in English, sacrament, we just drop the um off the end, means mysteries. And so our sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are mysteries of God. I don't understand how Christ's body and blood are present in the Lord's Supper. I just trust that they are because he said they are. I don't understand truly, fully, how water and the word can do such great things in baptism, but because the Lord has said that they do, I trust it. I trust him. The idea that he pours out his Holy Spirit upon us creates faith in us, that the Spirit would dwell in us. These are such wonderful things, 
and yet they are beyond our full comprehension. They are mysteries. Now, I say uh, the confusion with the Latin here is that even though sacramentum is one Latin word for mystery, there is another, and that would be mysterium. And for whatever reason, it's not the word sacramentum that gets used here, although it is elsewhere in Scripture. For example, Ephesians chapter 5, sacramentum hoc magnum est. Uh, Magnum sacramentum, a great, a profound mystery, as Paul talks about the mystery that is Christ and his bride, the church. So the Latin Vulgate definitely uses the word sacrament several times, and often with this word mystery, although sometimes interpretation. So the book of Daniel, the interpretation of the dreams, that word gets used there too. And yet here it's a different word, and I, I, again, I don't know the backstory of that. But a steward, a steward, a steward is a caretaker. A manager is a word we use in English in 21st century America quite a bit. These things are not our own. They have been given to us, entrusted to us to care for them, And so we do. We are all, as Christians, we are all stewards. You and I have been given to steward to care for God's people, for our neighbors, for this creation. But Paul, talking specifically about the leaders of the church, says that they are stewards of the mysteries of God. Again, this fits so well with that word sacrament, and I know it is used of the pastoral office. This is a great way to describe your pastor. He is a steward of the mysteries of God. It's a lengthy mouthful, but it's a fun title. But it's also one that comes with great responsibility, too. Because if you are a steward, you are a caretaker of something not your own, verse 2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. This is why the book of James contains the warning that not everyone should become teachers among you, brothers, because those who teach will be held accountable to a higher degree. This is the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 as Jesus talks about judgment and the end of the world, that the one who has been given five talents, he makes five more. The one, two, makes two more. The one who is only entrusted one, well, he goes and he buries it in the ground, makes nothing more. The one who had the five and now ten, when the judgment comes and the one who had one has it taken away from him, it's given to the one who has ten. If we are faithful over a little, the Lord will set us over much. But if we are not faithful over even a little, the Lord will take even what we have away from us. Stewards are responsible. They are to be faithful. And the Lord, on the judgment day, the Lord will hold us accountable for such things. So if it has been given you to govern... 
that is authority, the power of the sword, the Lord will judge you for how you have used that sword. If it has been given to you to be a parent, a father, or a mother, it will be judged for how you have stewarded those children unto the Lord, and so forth. Many examples can come up. We have many vocations. We have many responsibilities, many things the Lord has entrusted to us. Time, talent, treasure, to use the old stewardship three T's, Paul continues, verse 3, Very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. We're going to have a lot of this judge word in this text, and it even comes up in the next verse too. I just stopped short there. And this is one our culture loves to harp on, right? Matthew chapter 7, Judge not, lest ye be judged. How many times do pagans throw that against the Christian church? I don't know if historically they always have, but America does a lot. And yet it is a false reading of the verse if you only continue reading, and you would hear Jesus teach that you must first remove the log from your own eye so that you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's judging in order to recognize that there is yet something in your brother's eye that is a judgment. It's just the Lord calling us to do so humbly instead of pridefully and boastfully. So it's, it's important here to distinguish between different ways to talk about this word judge. For there are other scriptures that tell us we do judge. 1 Corinthians 5.12 what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Chapter 10, verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. John chapter 7, verse 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So the scriptures teach us not to judge, and they teach us to judge. The judgment that you and I are not to do is the judgment of condemnation. Or I would suppose even the opposite of that, to guarantee someone a place in paradise if that has not been given us to do. We do not know the outcome. We can speak clearly the gospel. We can speak clearly of the promises of Christ that for all who believe, anyone who trusts in his name, there is life everlasting. So to the parishioner who tells me that they trust in Jesus and his promises, I'll point them to paradise. I'll point them to the hope that we have together. But we are not in the position to actually make the final declaration. I do not have the authority to send someone to hell. I can point out to them the danger that is coming if they do not repent of what they're doing. That's not condemning, though. That's not the judgment of this kind. So the other type of judge would be the word discern, perhaps, that we use in English. You need to be able to judge between right and wrong. You need to be able to, to judge between what is helpful and, and what is not helpful. You can insert the word discern there in place of the word judge. We need to be able to discern good and evil. 
We need to be able to discern if something is going to build up our neighbor or tear down our neighbor. We need to be able to see our life and discern whether things in it are evil or if we are being faithful. And in the same way, we can discern as we see our neighbor's life so that if we see something in their life that would be harming them, we don't just stand by and allow them to harm themselves, but at least we we seek to love them and care for them by sharing Christ's love, but also his warning. So Paul here seems to first be indicating that to be judged in the worldly sense, to be judged in a discerning way, even in a human court, not a big deal. In fact, he would be in the book of Acts. He can face such things no matter. In that sense, he doesn't even really judge himself. He can't even, verse 4, not aware of anything against myself. He's not thinking of any crime that he's committed in the worldly sense. That doesn't mean he's free. It doesn't mean he's innocent because he is under the Lord's judgment at the end of verse 4. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. That points to this idea of being, again, that judgment of the Lord on the last day. So the Lord will do that. And he will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness, so that is our sinful ways, and disclose the purposes of the heart, so the things that we have loved above all things, they'll be known on the last day. And each one of us will receive commendation from God. So this is that warning about being faithful stewards of what we've been entrusted with. And as Christians, we know we are not perfect. We confess our sins, we repent, and that the Lord is merciful and he forgives. Trust in that forgiveness. Do not seek to go about this yourself, because if you do, you will fall. And that really ends up being the warning for the rest of the text. The Corinthians seem to be boasting that they can make do themselves. So here's verses 6 and 7. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So Paul has talked about himself and Apollos in this servant way first, that they are accountable to God, they must be faithful, and he's applying it to them so that these brothers in the church in Corinth may also see the same, that they may not go beyond what is written, that they may not be puffed up in their own pridefulness of thinking of how great they are, Remember chapter 1, God chose the weak to shame the strong, and we are told to boast only in the Lord, not in ourselves. And yet that is precisely what they are doing. They are boasting as though they have received things by their own efforts. And this is a simple question that even a child can answer. What do you have that you did not receive? The answer to that is nothing. We have nothing that was not given to us. The very body that you are, your body and soul, those are gifts. You didn't make them. You didn't do that. 
the breath that you breathe, the, the morning that you enjoy, every day that God gives, these are gifts. The food on your table, the clothing on your back, the roof over your head, these are gifts. Give us this day our daily bread. And so if you have received all of these things, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why are they bragging as though they are somehow great? And that leads us into verse 8, which I believe our Lutheran study Bible then properly indicates is actually Paul mocking them for the things they say. So a bit of sarcasm here on Paul's part in verse 8 that unravels into verse 9 into a normal speech again. So here's verses 8 through 13, the remainder of our text. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we blessed. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So verse 7, indicating the pridefulness of the church in Corinth, thinking again they can do all these things themselves. This hits its fullness in chapter 15 where some of them have even stopped believing that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead I and mean, that's that's bad that that would be outside of Christianity from my my perspective the Lord's servant Paul still calling them brothers at that point seeking to call them to repent but the divisions in Corinth are intense And so he's being sarcastic with them here to prove his point. So you start at the beginning of this paragraph with the idea that the Corinthians think that they are so great, they think that they have earned all this for themselves. Look, we're rich. Look, we're like kings. And we can pause on that. Are we rich? Yes, we are rich in Christ. We have been given all things. We have everything we could possibly need. We have the promises of forgiveness, life, and salvation. They are yours even now in Jesus. And are we kings? Oh, yeah. We get to reign in paradise with Christ forever. We are co-heirs with Jesus. That does not seem to be the way that Paul is using the phrases here, though. Would that you did reign, that we might share the rule with you. They don't actually reign, even though they seem to be thinking of themselves so greatly and so highly. They're not actually there. And so Paul then flips this around. I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. That is, to you, O Corinthians, as a reminder of who we are as Christians. He has taken the leaders of the church, and instead of making them kings over the earth, he's made them martyrs, like men sentenced to death. And most of the apostles would face martyrdom. They would all face martyrdom. The apostle John survives it and is 
the only one to die the old age that we're aware of. So they become a spectacle to the world. The world looks and laughs and mocks. The angels look in a different way, unless you take this as the fallen angels, demons, who would also, like the world, look and laugh and mock. But angels would look with concern and care, for they are also the Lord's servants, and we are part of their stewardship. And then to men. Paul, Apollos, Cephas will go through the things that they go through in part so that the church remains humble, so that the church does not begin to think that we've done this on our own, that we've done this apart from Christ, that we are somehow kings of the earth in this way, boasting in the things of man. Instead, look to the leaders of the church, look to some of the greatest men, as we might phrase it, right? I mean, we respect Paul and Peter greatly as those who took the gospel to the Gentiles and to the Jews both may not have ever been a better missionary than the Apostle Paul, and yet he is a fool for Christ's sake. And this again is the sarcasm in verse 10. We, so Paul, Apollos, Cephas, are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are in disrepute. So he's pointing out the distinction in how they're living. That these Corinthians are seeking to go about this faith thing all wrong. They're trying to use it to gain advantage and prestige for themselves in this world, much like the Pharisees had done amongst the Jews. But Jesus in Matthew 6 warns that the Pharisees had received their reward in full already. There would not be any further reward. So Paul reminds them in verses 11 through 13 of the suffering that the apostles endure on their behalf so that the gospel may be preached to them, so that the gospel may go out to all nations, and they are reminded that this is also then their lot. Hunger, thirst, poorly dressed, so buffeted, attacked, homeless, without a place to stay, laboring, reviled. We'll get to 12b. So all these negative things, they are not rich, they are not kings. They are servants. Then 12b, when reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. So even though the world treats them terribly, how do they respond? They respond in a godlike way. They would respond in a Christ-like way. When the world crucifies Jesus, he prays for the world's forgiveness. This is what sets Christianity apart. This is what makes the martyrdom of our brothers and sisters in Christ a blessing and a gift. That as they go to the cross, as they go to the stake, as they go to be burned, as they go to whatever the death method is, they go not heaping insults at their accusers. But they yet continue to try and share the hope that is within them, according to 1 Peter 3.15. And in some cases that has 
been the way the Spirit has created faith in people. Hearing that gospel, hearing that good news, even in the face of death, why would you press on? Just recant. Give it up. And they don't. Recant and live. Pinch a little incense to Caesar and live. But they endure. Thanks be to God, they endure. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Uh, Scum, refuse, dirt, rubbish, these two Greek words here are fairly closely related, and a lot of those kinds of words could be used in English translations. We're the filth of the world. The world does not value us. In contrast to the Corinthians, again, thinking they are rich and kings and have everything that they want. This is not the life of the Christian. We are but servants. May we be faithful stewards. May those who lead us in the church be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. That we may all, serving one another, encouraging one another, and yet discerning good and evil, for the sake of our neighbor. Lastly, this brings us to our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 to 34. This is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a very difficult sermon, depending on how you hear it. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest recorded consecutive teaching section of Jesus, going from Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. It's not very cleverly named, by us men, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached a sermon as he sat on a mount, on a mountain, right? Uh, pretty straightforward. But he starts it with gospel. He starts it with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those. Blessed are you. That's good news, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall inherit the earth, for theirs is the kingdom, Uh, for they shall be satisfied. Good stuff. Jesus starts with gospel, but if you look at the whole of this sermon, 6%. 6% gospel. Then he's going to move into a section of calling, which is 4.5% leaving 89.5% of this section to be straightforward, just the law, plain and simple. I think most LCMS or Lutheran sermons aren't like this. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Jesus' sermon, if it were unknown to a seminary professor, would be flunked in a seminary homiletics class, the classes where they teach you how to preach. Um... This is just not the way it's taught, but this is the way our Lord did it. And we should simply say thanks be to God for that. What is Jesus up to? Well, again, he starts with gospel. He starts with who they are, that they they are his, they're blessed in him. And then he moves into the calling, and that's stuff you're familiar with. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, you are a city on a hill. And then he goes into the law, and he takes what seem to be normal Old Testament laws things that they've heard, things they've been told to do. Some of them aren't actually in the Old Testament. That's another story. And he makes them harder. 
In this case, it would be very applicable to that rich young man who comes to him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically asks him to keep the commandments. And the man responds, I have done all of these from my youth. Jesus could have carved him up as God, as the Lord, who knows the heart of sinful man. He could have cut him to pieces, shredded him with the law. Of all the things he had done wrong by thought, word, and deed, but he doesn't. He goes straight to the largest idol that that man had, his money. That man's wealth made it so that he could trust himself. He did not have to worry about tomorrow because he knew where his food would come from. It came from him. He was self-assured, self-insured, if you want to phrase it that way, for a term that works today. And so Jesus told him to get rid of it. Trust in God. God will provide. Sell it all. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. You want to know how you have eternal life? You follow Christ. There's your answer. That's what he asked the man to do, and the man can't do it. So, these laws would have been very applicable to him to see how he had broken God's word, how he had not kept the commandments. You think it's bad to to murder, right? Well, okay. What else counts as murder? Hatred? Insults? We're all in trouble. Jesus does that with his laws. That's one way to look at this section. I do want to pose to a separate way to look at this section, and it colors the way you see it all. And it hinges on verse, well, hinges on a couple of verses from chapter 5. So you've got the calling. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Verse 16. They may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The start of chapter 6, Jesus is going to say, don't let your works be seen. Don't act like the Pharisees who do it for the sake of being praised by men. Their reward has been earned already by men in full They don't have a reward with God. The contrast is the purpose. It's the the reasoning here. We do good works not so the world praises us. We do good works so the, the world sees Christ and the world would glorify God the Father. That's the call. And I think verse 48 kind of connects as well. ESV has, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that is a giant punch to the face of law. There's nothing we can do. I don't know it's the best translation. Let me take you here quickly to chapter 5, verse 48. This is the New King James Version. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Then also the New American Standard Bible. Therefore you shall be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Do you see the difference? You must be perfect. You shall be perfect. 
Shall could be read in two different directions. It could be read as a command. You shall be perfect. You have to do this. It can also be read as gospel. Did you know in paradise, you shall be perfect? That's what Jesus does for us. He makes us perfect. Just as the Father is perfect, he makes us perfect. Thanks be to God. It's kind of a hinging verse there, depending on how you hear it. Matthew 5, verse 48. And so I think that comes back to us here in chapter 6. Is Jesus heaping up impossible laws to keep? Or is Jesus showing us what it is that is our calling as Christians? That this is who the Lord wants us to be. This is what it would look like to follow him so that our neighbor will see our good works and glorify God. Why don't you hate other people? Why don't you insult people? Everybody else does. That's not normal. Why do you love your enemies? Why do you pray for those who persecute you? Why why do you forgive your wife after everything she's done to you? They see our good works, that they may glorify the Father in heaven. We have an opportunity to share the faith that we have. We don't do these things perfectly. Thanks be to God for the forgiveness of Christ for how we fail, however often we fail, right? But see that in that light too. I give you a couple ways to think of the Sermon on the Mount. Anyway, our text for today is one that I think most Christians are very familiar with. It's divided in three paragraphs, although the first and the third are both just one verse each. So here it is. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We could replace the word money there with anything. If we try to serve anything other than God, if we try to have a master that is anything other than God, it is an idol. And that can be even the good gifts God gives. I I mean, technically money can be a good gift God gives too. Your family can be an idol if it is your master instead of the Lord. Your job, your friends, uh, your entertainment. It's not that there's necessarily something wrong with those other things. They're gifts of God. Let the gift be the gift. Worship the one who gave the gift. You can't do both. If you try to set money up as your God, if it's your master, you despise God because you no longer trust that it comes from him. Just like that rich young man later on in the gospel, Matthew chapter 19, he does not trust that his, his, his daily bread comes from Jesus. He thinks his daily bread comes from him, from the work of his own hands. It becomes a thing of pride and not a thing of faith. The world chases after money. That's going to be the point. That's going to be verse 32. The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. See the connection? The world does it this way. We're called to do it a different way, trusting in God, living by what he gives us to live by, so that our neighbor will see that. I mean, let's just talk about money for a moment. We live in America. This nation, last I knew, was $31 trillion in debt. That's a lot of money. 
I haven't done the math in a while, but that's like over $100,000 per person living in this land, I think. Imagine if the government made us all try to pay that back. I have several children. If each of them owed $100,000 as minors, I'd be in trouble. Individually, though? Student loan debt, credit card debt, automobile debt. The average debt load has like one-third of a person's income leaving before it even hits their pocket. We live in a very broken financial place. For as much wealth as it seems like we have, we, we're in debt. Crazily in debt. It's preventing families from being created. Men and women, young men and women are not getting married because of their debt load. They're postponing marriage almost a decade in the last two generations. Has it changed? The average age of first marriage is what I mean by that. And then also the first time they have a child. It happens at the other end of life too. Um, you have older couples where you have a widow and a widower. They're both receiving social security checks and they don't want to lose the money, so they're not getting married, even though they might even be living together. The world around us is broken financially, very much so. And how much do they chase it? How much of politics is about money? How much of daily conversation is about how I don't have enough money, how I, I can't afford this, I can't do this thing I want to do, right? What if the world saw the Christian differently? Go read Acts chapter 2 and see what the Christians did with their money. The Lord was adding to their number day by day because the people watched them living their calling as Christians. And they wanted to know the reason for the hope that they had. So hopefully, again, this is giving you a different way to think of the Sermon on the Mount than the normal just law-heavy word that it is. And, I mean, you can certainly look at it that way, and maybe Jesus is even doing both. He's God. He can do that. Anyway, all right, let's read our big paragraph, verses 25 to 33. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is the don't worry, don't be anxious section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's pretty well known within the church, and it's still a struggle for us, isn't it? It's hard not to worry. Worry is trying to take matters into our own hands. As broken sinners, 
the sinful nature, we want to be in control. We want, like that rich young man, to know where tomorrow's meal is going to come from. The Lord provides. That's the simple point of this section. And again, the possible connection to the whole sermon could be that by showing our faith that the Lord will provide for us, our neighbors will see that faith. Wonder why we don't worry about everything they're worried about. And they'll want that. I don't how many of you how many of you want to be worried? It's not the normal way to talk about it, right? I, I don't mean to worry. I don't want to worry. I just, I, I, I worry all the time. I know I shouldn't, but I, I worry all the time. That's the way we talk. And our neighbors, our non-Christian neighbors will talk that way too. They don't want to worry. They don't want to live that way. The Lord shows there's another way, a way of trust. And again, ultimately the point of that is you're immortal now, even if you die. Even if it were by starvation, for example, because of a broken economic system and a broken government, a corrupt government over you, this happens. Christ raises you. And there's no more suffering. There's no more hunger, no more thirst. Only life and daily bread from him forever in paradise. So Jesus gives a couple of examples of why we should not be worried. He points to the birds And he points to the flowers of the field, the lilies. Lilies don't serve themselves. The lilies aren't living by the biblical sense of the word living. But there they are. There they grow, and then they die. And they're described here by Jesus as being dressed even more gloriously than Israel's richest king Solomon ever was. That's quite a compliment to his own creation right there. Um, as we would expect, right? The Lord made that. Solomon's own wealth is just stuff. Stuff that man's hand has made, right? Man makes the clothing. Man makes other things. That flower was clothed by Jesus himself. Something to be said for that. And then the birds of the air, they don't have barns. They don't stockpile their food so that they're comfortable for the next day. They live day to day by what the Lord gives them. Now, yes, it's a broken creation. And along will come uh, another animal and it will eat the bird. Or uh, in today's day and age, the bird will run into your window. No more birdie. Death happens in a broken world. But plain and simple, God provides for them. The Lord gives them life. The Lord sustains their life. And so he does for you. I don't like verse 27. I should say I don't like the English translation of verse 27. Which of you, being by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Let me describe why I don't like it. It's not what Jesus said. I don't know why the English translations like to do this on this particular verse. Nobody's ever explained it to me because this is not what Jesus said. He did not say, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? He said, which of you by being anxious can add a cubit to his height? Let's look at the difference. How many of you think that by worrying, you can extend your life? You might actually be able to, right? It could be worry that causes you not to go do something that might be risky. If Paul were worried, he might not have gone on his missionary journeys. 
Paul doesn't go on his missionary journeys. Maybe he lives to be 70, 80, 90 years old and dies of old age instead of dying a martyr. Or maybe it's worry about uh, doing something foolish that would, would harm you and wrong you. You can see this, right? Which of you by worrying can make yourself grow? Go ahead. Close your eyes. Squeeze them really hard. Strain yourself. Stress. Try to grow. It doesn't work. A cubit is 18 inches, by the way, from the tip of your elbow to the tip of your finger, your middle finger. We can't make ourselves grow. Even if we tried, you're not going to grow yourself 18 inches. And think of that in the, in the grand scheme of things. 18 inches from God's throne is nothing. Like a speck, not even a speck. That wouldn't even show up. I think of the, the outer space view. Look down on, on earth. You can't even see your house. And your house is a lot bigger than 18 inches. It's nothing. This is such a simple thing. The Lord has caused every human being in this world to grow to the height that they are. All of that growth came from him. We can't do that, but he can. If you can't do that, if you can't do something that in the cosmos of this universe, of God's great and grand creation, if you can't do something that insignificant to the scale of it all, why do you think you have to do this other stuff? Don't. Oh, you of little faith, will he not much more clothe you? Will he not much more feed you? Don't be anxious. The Gentiles seek after all these things, yet their heavenly Father knows you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. Trust in God and do the work he's put before you. Love your neighbor as yourself. And God will provide. Trust him. That's the call. It's a hard call. I'm not saying it's not. We want to take control back. We want to worry. We want to be anxious. And again, we wouldn't say it that way. But our sinful nature does. Our sinful nature grabs it back. We say, we trust it to you, O Lord. It is yours. Take this. Then our sinful nature reaches right back out and grabs whatever it is we just entrusted to God to care for and says, we can do this. And then we stress over it. It's a cycle. It's a vicious one. Trust in the Lord. And as we do, our neighbors will see that trust and they'll, they'll be curious. Why aren't you worried? Everybody else is worried to the point where their hair is falling out. Their blood pressure is too high. And yet there you are. You're not worried. Why not? The Lord provides. You can probably speak the gospel a little more articulately than that, but as long as it's his word, the Holy Spirit's at work. It doesn't have to be long and articulate. God created us out of nothing, so he can do as he pleases. All right, lastly, verse 34, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Stop looking ahead. I mean, honestly, you don't even know if there will be a tomorrow. That's the parable of the rich fool who stores up much great wealth for himself and says to himself, eat, drink, and be merry. And then God takes his life that night. 
I don't know if tomorrow will come. So do we make basic plans for tomorrow? Sure, because we have a neighbor. If the Lord gives us a tomorrow, we have neighbors around us who need us to serve them. But don't make it your goal. Your goal is not to get to tomorrow. Your goal is to love God and love your neighbor right now, right where you are. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. There's enough trouble as it is. And I think we'd all agree to that, wouldn't we? It's hard enough just to live in the moment, let alone to try to live in the moment and live in tomorrow and live in 20 years from now. It just doesn't work. Trust God, for he knows our needs and well provides us. Amen. Amen.